0: Uh, you can, if you have a Bible, you can turn your Bible to Habakkuk chapter 3. Uh, it's also printed in the bulletin. That's, um, you can find that. Uh, it's more than halfway through the Bible. Just before you get to the New Testament, um, maybe not quite two-thirds of the way through the Bible, you'll find the minor prophet Habakkuk. Um, as you're turning there, I want you to think about this question. Um, what would you do if you found out that the world was going to end in six months? Um, ...that there was no chance of survival for anyone... ...that a giant asteroid was going to hit the earth... ...and kill off all of humanity just like that. Six months to live, then it's all over. How would you live uh, those six months... ...with this catastrophe looming over you? Um, That's the premise of the fictional book... ...The Last Policeman by an author named Ben Winters. Um, The Last Policeman is a story about a police officer... ...who is trying to solve a murder that takes place in that very context. There's an asteroid headed to Earth. They've got six months to live. Scientists have calculated this. They know exactly when it's going to hit. And so worldwide it's this countdown. And there's this one police officer who becomes a detective... ...and is trying to solve this murder in the midst of this situation. And throughout the book you get this picture... ...that humanity is simply unable to cope with this coming disaster... Um, at one point, a character in the story says this. He says, people's inability to face up to this thing is worse than the thing. It really is. He says that even worse than the fact that there's a giant asteroid heading towards us... it's going to decimate the earth... ...is how crazy people are in responding to the fact that there's a giant asteroid... ...heading towards the earth and everything. Um, and you see this throughout the book. Entire industries shut down because people leave their jobs. Economies start collapsing... Uh, People suspend all sense of morality or ethics and just sort of um, do whatever they feel like doing with whoever they want to do it with. It's sort of like this total hedonism that starts happening. Um, There's what's called bucket listers who sell everything, dedicate all the remaining time to just crossing stuff off the bucket list they wanted to do before they died. Um, The despair becomes so great that that many um, uh, resign themselves to suicide because they just can't take the thought of what's about to happen. But the theme of this book, The Last Policeman, is that it is difficult to have hope in hard times. Either total despair or total hedonism is a much more natural response than remaining hopeful when things get really hard. Thankfully, that's not the situation we're in. Uh, Don't edit the podcast or the video of this sermon to, to make it sound like I'm claiming the world's ending in six months due to a giant asteroid. That's not the situation we're in that I'm aware of. But we all face hard times, every one of us. Life is so hard. Um, Sometimes the hard things in life can feel relentless. Uh, Wave after wave of grief, Um, suffering after suffering, more loss, more difficulty, deeper loneliness. Um, and then we experience these things in the midst of a culture um, that really doesn't have healthy categories for, um, for expressing and handling any kind of like negative emotions. And we can end up feeling like people in the last policeman book where we're either in just this personal total despair or we give into just total hedonism. Because we don't have categories of how to navigate hard times with any kind of hope whatsoever. What kind of hard times do we face? Uh, it might be job related. Um, ...where you lose a job unexpectedly... ...and maybe it feels like you lost your identity with that job. Um, you have no clue how you're going to pay the bills. Maybe the hard time is a relational... ...it's a relationship that's maybe ended... ...or one that feels strained... Um, ...where like maybe at one point this relationship was a lifeline... ...or at least something you could count on... ...and now it's maybe you can't count on it anymore... ...you don't know if it's going to be there... ...or it won't be the same. How am I going to move forward without this relationship... Uh, Maybe the hard time is health-related, where you get a a health diagnosis. It's just going to change everything for the rest of your life. How do we typically respond to hard times? Total despair, maybe? Total hedonism? Just do whatever we want to do because life's going to be hard? Uh, Maybe for people like us, it's forced positivity. Uh, This is especially uh, an option for people who are really capable, driven, type A, motivated people to just... Say, it's going to be fine. I'm going to power through. Don't worry about me. We're just going to be really positive through this thing. But it's not really positivity based on faith. It's more based on just grit and stoicism. How can we have hope in hard times? That's the question of Habakkuk. Earlier in the book of Habakkuk, he was complaining to God. We saw him complaining twice. The first time he looked around, he saw all this immorality and sin and disobedience amongst God's people. And he complained to God and he said, God, what are you doing? Aren't you going to do something? Your people are living terrible lives. Why don't you do anything about it? And God said, I actually am going to do something about it. I'm going to raise up those wicked, evil Babylonians to come and judge our people. And so when God told Habakkuk what he was going to do, Habakkuk then started complaining about what God chose to do. So his complaint changed. God, you're not doing anything. To God, I don't like what you're doing. But in chapter 3, after all this, Habakkuk is actually going to show us the way forward. He's going to show us how to have hope in hard times. With this in mind, let me read chapter, four, or chapter 3 for us, beginning in verse 1. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigianoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known." In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light, rays flashed from his hand. And there he veiled his power, before him went pestilence. And plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways." I saw the tents of Kishon in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped and the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. To the choir master with stringed instruments. The word of the Lord. Father, we do thank you for your word. And oh, how we need to hear from you now. Holy Spirit, come and speak to us. Apply this to our specific situation. We long to hear from you. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so how can we have hope in hard times? Three things this morning. First is by rehearsing the true story. Second, by submitting to the author of the story. And third, by rejoicing in the author of the story. So the first is this, we can have hope in hard times by rehearsing the true story. This is what Habakkuk is doing throughout this passage. And he remembers some major things that God had done in history. The first thing, he remembers God's rescue. Um, The exodus was when God rescued his people from Egyptian slavery. And there were a number of plagues that led up to the actual exodus where he brought his people out of Egypt. Um, And there's there's geographical references if you look at verse 3. Those are referring to places surrounding the events of the Exodus. And if you look at verse 8... ...it talks about God's wrath against the rivers... ...and His, his indignation against the sea. Uh, this is more Exodus language. Um, the very first plague in the Exodus account... ...is God turning the Nile River from water into blood... ...which obviously killed all the fish... ...made it to where the Egyptians they couldn't drink water from it. It was the first of these ten plagues that God would bring on the Egyptians... In verse 8, where it mentions the sea, this is referring to the Red Sea that God parted in order for Israel to escape. And when the Egyptians followed, the water was washed back over them. Look down at verses 14 and 15. This is referring to God's victory over the Egyptians. Um, Exodus language and themes are all over this prayer of Habakkuk. And this makes sense because this would have been the salvation event up to this point in Israel's history. Um, it was the most dramatic showing of what God is like... ...of how He cares for His people... Um, ...that even when they don't deserve it... ...when they have not earned it... ...even when they've disearned it... ...God comes and does miraculous things... ...to rescue and to free His people. And so Habakkuk, in his prayer, he remembers God's rescue. What else does he remember? He remembers God's promises. There's a reference in verses 4 and 5... ...this is referring to Mount Sinai... ...where God made this promise to His people that He would be their God and they would be His people forever, no matter what. And then He gave him the law, the Ten Commandments. It's sort of the way of life for His people. And said, if you're going to be one of my people, here's how we're going to do things. And these verses 4 and 5, they're referencing the power and the might with which God showed up at Mount Sinai. So Habakkuk is remembering God's promises to him in that moment. What else? He remembers God's protection. Look at verse 11. Verse 11 is a reference when Joshua was leading the army of the Israelites... God fights for his people at Gibeon. The account this is the account where the sun and the moon stand still. Habakkuk is rehearsing this true story. He's remembering God's rescue, God's promises, God's protection in the past. All right, zoom out for a moment. What effect would this have on Habakkuk and on God's people? They're in this impossible hard time. They're just sitting there waiting for the Babylonians to come in and take them into exile. God said, "Hey, this is what's going to happen." Um, They don't know what the future is going to look like, but they know it's going to be bad. What deep, heart-level truths would this help them to grasp? God, when we thought you had abandoned us, you actually were there for us, coming to rescue us. God, you were faithful in the past, and you've promised to always be faithful, even right now. God, you fight for your people ...and you win. Always. Um, Habakkuk is saying uh, because of who God is... ...and because of how He has acted in the past... ...that that's enough for Him to have hope right now in this really hard time. All right, What does that mean for us sitting here this morning? The same truth applies. Um, Because of who God is, because of how He's acted in the past... ...we can have hope in really hard times that don't seem to make any sense. Um, But rather than rehearse that true story... Most of us, if you're anything like me... ...have untrue, damaging stories that we tell ourselves... ...almost without even realizing it... ...that are sort of uh, played on repeat, ingrained inside of us... ...especially during hard times. It might be stories like this. Of course, I've done it again. I've messed things up so bad they're beyond repair. Typical me. Just on repeat. Uh, Or maybe this. Of course this happened. People are the worst... I can't count on people. Uh, they're always leaving me high and dry. Just on repeat when something bad happens. Uh, or maybe it's this um, God has abandoned me again. For some reason, He's just out to get me. Over and over and over. Maybe it's this You know, why does any of this matter, anyways? Life is so hard. I'm just going to do what I want to do. On repeat. ...the story we tell ourselves. Rather than the true story of who God is... ...and what He's done in the past... ...we rehearse some false damaging story. Um, I realize not everyone here is a parent... ...but you know, some of you are parents of young children... ...or have been at some point. And, and for every parent of young children... Um, ...you all have stories of, of potty training your children. Uh, now as a, as a quick aside... ...one of the things they tell us in seminary... ...is when you're preaching to never talk about anything... ...that happens in the bathroom which I think is generally good advice, Uh, but I'm going to break that for just a moment. Um, I feel like potty training is relatively safe ground to wade into because it can be one of the craziest and most traumatic tasks that any human can undertake, both parent and child. Um, I can remember when our kids were little, and I will spare you the details and the names, but let's just say things were not going well in our potty training, and um, Aaron and I were 100% at the end of ourselves, again, sparing the details, we were failing at this very crucial life task. and So much so that we got so frustrated and so discouraged standing there in the bathroom with one of our three daughters that we Aaron and I both started crying. And so I'll never forget the moment uh, where we stepped out of the bathroom into the hall and we shut the door and it was just my wife and I standing uh, in the hall looking at each other, literally crying, and we hugged each other and we just said, um, we know for sure that she'll be potty trained by the time she goes to college. <laughs> and that was, that was real hope in that moment of despair that, that this thing felt impossible. And we had no clue as to how we would move forward with this. But we knew we, knew we weren't going to send her to college. Uh, that by the time she went, she'd be potty trained. How can you rehearse... The true story during your hard times we've got to get outside of ourselves and and be able to hear the truth and rehearse it in those moments we need to be able to do this personally but also with one another personally um, this is why reading the bible on your own is a really big deal Um, sometimes you'll come across a passage that's really poignant about a hard situation that you're in or you'll read something about god that, that shows you a side of god something about his character that is just so helpful to that really hard season that you're facing. And so what could you do? You could get out an old school note card and you could write that verse on a note card. You could keep it in your car with you, in your pocket. You could put it up in your locker. You could screenshot it on your phone. Um, And you could maybe even write something on that card, a lie that you're tempted to believe. One of those false stories you're tempted to tell yourself in the moment. And write that lie on the card and also write a passage of scripture on there that is true. And so rehearsing the true story means literally rehearsing the true story, where when you're feeling discouraged, you just read, you take that note card out and you read through it, and that can begin to lead you into prayer where you're praying, you're rehearsing the true story before God, where you're talking to Him about that specific thing that you're dealing with. So we also we need to be able to do this personally, but we also we we need to be able to help each other rehearse the true story. Look back at your text, look at verse one. It says, according to Shigyanoth. And I have no idea if that's how you pronounce that or not. Look at the very end of the passage, the end of verse 19. To the choir master with stringed instruments. Um, This is a prayer that is meant to be prayed and sung together. It is assuming people are reading and praying this together in community. This means when you're going through a hard time, don't give up on community. It is so easy in hard times to fade into isolation because... Uh, People don't understand what you're going through... uh, because you are so tired of explaining what you're going through. Who knows? Who doesn't know? Do I have to talk about this again? You're tired of hiding what you're going through. Or maybe you just don't feel like being around other people. But don't do it. Don't give up on community. Keep coming to worship. Keep going to your neighborhood group. Keep meeting that friend for coffee. Sometimes we can just feel so overwhelmed by our hard times... that we can't even see straight anymore. If you've been in that situation, then you know how prone you are... ...to just go off the rails if left to yourselves. We need people in our lives to help us not do that. Um, numerous times um, when my wife and I, Aaron, have left a social gathering... ...we will both get hit uh, on the drive home with a kind of... Um, ...for lack of a better term, it's like a post-social gathering shame... ...of feeling completely socially awkward... And uh, we're, 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 we're driving home and both of us individually are convinced of, about ourselves that we are the most socially awkward person that exists in the world. And it was on full display at whatever social event we were at that evening. And one of us will say, oh, I just felt so awkward tonight. I felt like I just couldn't put my words together, like I was just off. I didn't know, it. I just wasn't tracking, it felt so awkward. And the other one of us will say, what you No, you were great tonight. You didn't seem awkward at all. I felt like the most socially awkward person tonight. I felt like I couldn't string my words together. And so we're, we're driving home both individually feeling like we are the most awkward human on the planet... ...all the while reassuring the other person that they are not the most awkward human on the planet. This is why we need each other as a church to help each other rehearse and to actually hear what is true... Because we can't do it on our own. We have blind spots. We get deceived. We don't know ourselves like we should. We have to have people speaking into it. And this is why we want everyone in neighborhood, neighborhood groups. We don't just say that to say that. We think we actually need this. This is why it's important to be present and worship. On, on any given Sunday or on any given neighborhood group gathering, you might be the one that needs to hear something that is true that's going to give you some clarity and some hope in your situation. Or God may need you there to tell someone that clarity. Help someone else rehearse what is true in their particular hard time that they're going through. So we can maintain hope in hard times by rehearsing the true story. next two points are a lot shorter. Secondly, we can have hope in hard times by submitting to the author of the story. Submitting. That word can be really tough for us. Um, That word might actually be a reason why you struggle with Christianity or some of the Bible's teaching... Uh, Many of us have an allergy to that word submit. I almost used a different word. But that's actually what Habakkuk is doing here. He's submitting to God. Which is really incredible given the fact that up to this point he's only been complaining. Um, To go from complaining about something to submitting... ...it shows that he is choosing to trust God rather than his own read on a situation... Uh, even though it doesn't make sense, even though it's not how Habakkuk himself would do things, he is humbling himself and he's choosing to submit. And we see this come out in his prayer. Verse 2, he says, Oh Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O oh Lord, do I fear. Look down at verse 16. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. There's this... Um, Physical um, overwhelm that he is feeling about the situation. But then he says, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. And you know this can't have been easy for him. But he was really upset, really complaining for the first two chapters of this book. It's almost like the image of, of two wrestlers wrestling on a mat. And they're just going at it and, and, and eventually one of the wrestlers is put in a hold and you know they're not going to get out of it. But this wrestler does not want to tap out. And, and, and the crowds are watching this wrestling match and they can see who's going to win the wrestling match. And the crowds begin to get worried about this one wrestler who's pinned down and the crowds start yelling, hey, tap out. Ta- what are you doing? Tap out. You're not going to win this. And the wrestler is just refusing to tap out. But then eventually, when they're about to black out, finally the wrestler taps out. They submit. Uh, To submit to God is to tap out when His plans are different than our plans. And it is not easy. It takes a lot of wisdom. It takes a lot of humility to say, okay, God, clearly your plans are different. And I'm just going to trust that what you have for me is better. I'm going to tap out and surrender to you. I played one very unsuccessful year of football my freshman year of high school. That was when I became a runner. Um, One of the things that they focused on, though, in freshman football... uh, ...was how you're supposed to hold your head when you're tackling someone. And this is maybe the most counterintuitive thing imaginable. Um, Your gut instinct when flying at full speed uh, towards another human... um, ...would be to put your head down and curl up in a ball and sort of brace for impact... But that you're, ex- you're supposed to do the exact opposite of that. Um, when tackling someone, you're supposed to keep your head up and look directly at them as you make impact. And this can prevent all kinds of injuries from happening. But this is so counterintuitive. So you have to trust your, co- your coaches over your own instinct in that moment. You have to submit to their instruction because it's clearly what's best for you when you're tackling someone. Are you able to trust God more than yourself? Are you able to really submit to Him even when your gut is telling you to do something different, to do something your own way? When it comes to how you live your life, when it comes to how you respond in that relationship, when it comes to how you think about your sexuality and how you express that, when it comes to, think about, when it comes to how you think about navigating conflict, when it comes to how you think about your, managing your resources and your finances. Are you able to live in submission to God even when it goes against your gut? Even when you can't fully understand what He's up to? In order to have hope in hard times, we submit to the author of the story. But it doesn't end there. This is not just raw submission, sort of begrudgingly doing what we don't want to do, just kind of throwing our hands up in defeat. There's actually something better for us. This is the third thing. We can have hope in hard times by rejoicing in the author of the story. The entire account of Habakkuk is leading up to these final verses. If you hear nothing else of the sermon or of this entire book... uh, ...remember verses 17 through 19. Habakkuk says, "...though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines... ...the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no fruit and yield, uh, yield no food... The flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. Verse 18. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Um, Commentators point out about these verses that the produce mentioned here, the fig trees, fruit, olives, flock, these are all necessities that you would have to have in order to make a living in this context. Maybe the modern-day equivalent would be something like, although I've lost my job, although I'm out of money, although I'm in debt, although I might lose my house, although my friends have deserted me, although I don't have food, although my family doesn't want anything to do with me, yet I will rejoice. It's the feeling of, of looking around and being struck with the fact that you legitimately have no earthly reason to be hopeful. Everything is bad. Everything is objectively bad. The cards are stacked against you, yet I will rejoice. Habakkuk was just complaining about how God was either not doing enough or not doing the right thing, and now he's rejoicing. And take note that he's not just rejoicing at what God can give him, he's rejoicing in God in who he is. He says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. He's saying God is good when my life is good which we can agree with that. But he's also saying God is good when my life is bad. Even in those moments, God is still good. We have friends in another city who uh, years ago um, got pregnant with twins. Immediately it became a high-risk pregnancy. And towards the end of their pregnancy, um, the, the mother was hospitalized. And both her health and the health of her babies was very much on the line. And this was before social media... And so everyone, whenever something like this happened, they would uh, do blog post updates. And I'll never forget reading the husband's blog updates... ...after they had gotten all clear from the doctors that both his wife and the twins were going to survive and be okay. Um, He reported the good news and he said, God is good. He said, but God is not just good because things worked out in our favor. Even if things ended differently, God would still be good. Um, The faith that we see in this passage is faith that rejoices in God's goodness... ...regardless of the particular situation that you find yourself in. And, And what do we learn about rejoicing from Habakkuk? Tim Keller in his sermon on this passage makes the following point. He says rejoicing in the Lord happens during suffering. It happens concurrently with your suffering. Habakkuk was still suffering... He was still in a hard time. Um, He still didn't love the plans of the Babylonians... ...coming and taking Israel into captivity. Things were about to get a lot worse... ...and it would not get better in his lifetime. He wouldn't get to see it get better. He's suffering, yet he's rejoicing in God at the same time. And Keller goes on to say this. He says, some people are softened and humbled by suffering. Others get hardened and proud in suffering. Suffering will will make you either far better... ...or far worse than you were before. It's refining. Suffering does something to you. It did something to Habakkuk. Um, Dustin Salter was the name of my college campus minister... ...who had a massive impact on my life um, personally... ...and then the lives of hundreds of other students that he ministered to. The year after I graduated, um, Dustin was on a bike ride around the block... ...with two of his young children before dinner... And while he was on the bike ride, he fell, he crashed his bike, and he hit his head. And he went into a coma for the next five months... ...and ended up dying five months later that following spring. And just before the accident on that Tuesday... ...the Sunday before he got into his accident... ...Dustin preached what would be his last sermon. And he preached that sermon on the story of Joseph in Genesis. Genesis, uh, Joseph, that account is like the, the last basically 13, 14 chapters of the book of Genesis... And um, I won't summarize it all, but it's basically a story of suffering and persecution... ...of things not making sense, of just really, really hard times. Yet it ends up working out for Joseph's good... ...and not just for Joseph's good, but for the good of all Israel... ...to where at the end of the story, Joseph says to his brothers who were just awful to him... ...in Genesis 50 verse 20, it says, "...as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good... ...to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today." So what was meant for evil, God meant for good. What what felt impossibly hard, God was actually at work, meaning it for good. That was a text uh, that Dustin preached on two days... ...before he tragically and unexpectedly went into this coma... ...and died at age 37, leaving a wife and three young children behind. And in that sermon, Dustin talked about suffering. And he said this, he said, quote... "...suffering will either make you a bitter person... ...or it will make you a beautiful person. And one of our friends referred to that... ...and said that Dustin was almost preparing us for his death. He was telling us a few days before his accident... ...of the suffering that we would experience... ...of the grieving and his loss... ...that that that was either going to make us bitter or beautiful. What about the suffering in your life? What has it done to you? How has it changed you? Has it made you more bitter... Has it made you more beautiful? Has your suffering made you a far worse person? Has your suffering made you a far better person? We all want to be beautiful people. We want to be far better. We want to come out better on the other side of our suffering. How can we? By rejoicing in God in the midst of our suffering by submitting to Him in the midst of it, by trusting that He will give us that stability. He will make us stable on the high places like He talks about at the end of the passage. And that's a deep act of trust, a deep act of faith to say that, all right, even though I'm in hard times and I don't know the way out and I don't like this, I really do know and I really do believe that God is good. So I'm choosing to rejoice and I'm going to remember who God is and what He's like. And here's the key. Um, This is how you rejoice in the author of the story even during your hard times. By remembering that he's the God who entered the story himself in the person of Jesus. Why did he enter the story himself? Because of love. He loved us so much he came and lived the life that we should have lived. Lived a perfectly righteous, perfectly obedient life. Which we could never do. He did that in our place. Why? Because he loved us. And then he went to the cross to die the death that you and I deserve. We were to die for our sin, but instead Jesus, out of love, went and died for us. And then he didn't stay dead. He rose again. He conquered death and sin completely to say that this will not be how the story ends. Resurrection and life and hope will be how the story ends. And you can only have that through me. But that's how we know that that when life is hard and it just feels like it's only hard times coming our way, we can still know without a shadow of a doubt that God is good and that we can rejoice in Him. And the only way to have that kind of assurance, the only way to have hope in hard times is in Jesus. There's simply nothing else in this life that can offer you that kind of hope. And the good news this morning is that Jesus offers Himself to you. He offers Himself to you and you're just to receive Him by faith. To have faith is to receive and rest. It's not to prove yourself worthy. It's not to start turn over a new leaf today and be a better person. To have faith in Jesus is to receive and rest on Jesus. Receive the work He's done on your behalf. Rest in what He has done on your behalf. That's how you can have hope during hard times. Let's pray together. Oh Father, we are in desperate need for hope. It's easy to look around at the culture around us and and feel hopeless, feel discouraged, to feel worried about the future for a number of different reasons. God, we think about our own lives, our own relationships, and uh, life is just so, so hard. Life is so difficult, and sometimes it feels relentless. Sometimes it feels like we're in a season of years or, or, or a decade of just really hard things happening. We just can't seem to catch a break. And it's easy to turn in on ourselves and, and, and feel despair or just want to uh, lean into total hedonism, do whatever we want to do and stop following you. But we know that there's greater hope in you. And we see that in Jesus. And so, Father, I pray that each of us will be marked by deep hope in all the hard times we face both now and in the future. This is only possible through your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.